Good morning, everyone. Uh, my name is Dan, once again. It's great to be here. I'm so humbled to be asked to come and speak here. Uh, probably the biggest crowd I've spoken in front of at this point, so thank you for that. Before we get started, please join with me as we pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your kindness, for your mercy and your grace. We are so thankful that we are saved by grace and not by works. We are so thankful for the letter that Paul wrote to the Galatians. Please, Lord, as I speak today, may you remove any bias I may have. May you remove any fleshly thinking from me, and may I only speak what is truthful to the word. Please, Lord, open our hearts and our ears as we take upon this message. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so we've spent, as a parish, the uh, several weeks now looking at the letter to the Galatians, and uh, today we've reached the last chapter. Um, but as we consider how Paul has chosen to end this book, uh, we not only have to keep in mind what he said in the last few chapters, but it, we also need to keep in mind the wider biblical themes that have been raised and you would have heard in the sermons prior to this one. Now, while on the surface, these last 18 verses of Galatians 6, they may appear a bit bitsy, uh, Paul is in fact focused on one key idea, and that is the life in the Spirit. As we begin, we should recognize that this phrase, life in the Spirit, is really another way of describing the Christian, because it is only those who are born of the Spirit can call God Father and Jesus Lord. So Paul is describing what it is to be a Christian and what the Christian life looks like on the outside. Throughout the letter of Galatians, Paul has been arguing for the way of the Spirit rather than the way of the law. Yet the law restrained sin and it did show us our need for salvation. But now the Spirit has come. The, spirit, the law is no longer our guardian. The reign of the flesh is over and the Spirit is working His fruit in us. We are Spirit-led people. In chapter 6, Paul begins to unfold some of those implications of being Spirit-led people rather than being slaves to the law. Which brings us to our first point. Point 1. Those who live by the Spirit carry each other's burdens. Those who live by the Spirit carry each other's burdens. Look at verses 1 and 2. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. But watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. Paul in chapter 4 has already said that every believer in Christ is born of the Spirit. So the responsibility of carrying each other's burdens and restore a fallen brother or sister, that belongs to everyone who calls Christ their Lord. Christians often tend to think of uh, burdens as sickness, unemployment, maybe loss of a loved one, loneliness or rejection. And that's right. And if we are full of Christ we will be about the business of carrying these burdens. But Paul in verse 1 is showing us that burdens include sins and those oppressed by a sin. So it would be helpful for us to define a burden as anything that threatens to crush the joy and freedom of our faith. 
whether that may be a tragedy that threatens to make us doubt God's goodness or a sin that threatens to drag us into guilt and into judgment. So how do we carry each other's burdens? If someone is caught in a sin, proud superiority would drive us to look down on them. We would be glad not to be like them and feel righteous in ourselves. Pointing out their sin would merely be to underline how good we look by comparison. On the other hand, proud inferiority would cause us to either envy that life that they are leading, no matter how sinful it may be, or we may even crave their approval so much that we won't even risk pointing out their failure to live in line with the gospel. But what would those who live by the Spirit, those who are children of God do? Paul says we won't ignore a situation when we see someone caught in a sin. This doesn't mean, though, that we confront anyone we see sinning in any way. We're not to be quick to criticize and tell people about their faults. However, we mustn't overlook someone who's caught or overtaken by a sin. We need to help those who are in the habit of sinful behavior. If we see a pattern, we need to help them. We as Christians, as brothers and sisters, we need to be neither quick to criticize nor afraid to confront. So what's our aim? Our aim is to restore the person caught in sin and we need to restore them gently. A dislocated bone, I'm not sure if any of you have felt, a dislocated bone is extremely painful because it's not in its designed and natural relationship to the other parts of the body. To put a bone back to place will inevitably inflict a great deal of pain. But that pain is a healing pain. It means we're to confront even when it will be painful. But our confronting must be aiming to prompt a change of life and a change of heart. We're told to confront gently. I know I need this myself. I often don't confront gently, and I hurt a lot of people. So I'm so thankful that this sermon has come up, and I I got to study it, and it's actually helping me. Paul says that this gentleness will only come if you watch yourselves, though. Because if we don't watch ourselves, we may be tempted as well. We won't be able to winsomely confront someone if we think we're not capable of similar or even equal sin. If we don't think we're capable of similar or equal sin, we won't be winsome in the way we confront someone. If we do feel that we are above the person, this air of superiority will come through and we will destroy them and we will not restore them. If a Christian brother or sister is weighed down or menaced by some burden or threat, whatever that may be, Let's all of us be alert to quickly do something to help. Let's not let them be crushed. Paul's saying, don't let them be destroyed. And remember, a person who's sinning needs our help. Paul says, let's restore them. If we really care about, someone's, about a person's ultimate welfare, we will confront them with their sin as well as comfort, comforting them in their trouble. So we'll confront them in their sin and we'll comfort them in their trouble. Now let's think about this. Wouldn't it be great to belong to a family of believers who loved each other so much 
that they simply could not look the other way while a brother or sister hardens into a habit of sin. My goal, and and I urge you guys and Gregory Hills and all the churches, let's be that family. Let's be that family here corporately and then when we meet other Christians outside of our church, let's be that family together. Point two, those who live by the Spirit, they examine their own walk. Those who live by the Spirit examine their own walk. Look at verses three to five. It should be on the screen behind me. If anyone thinks they're something when they're not, they deceive themselves. Each one should test their own actions. Then they can take pride in themselves alone without comparing themselves to someone else. For each one should carry their own load. Now in these three verses, there are two types of pride Paul talks about. One, which is the wrong one, and the other, which is the correct one. Paul exhorts us to test ourselves to ensure that we have the right kind of pride. The first one he discusses is the wrong one. If anyone thinks there's something when they're not, they deceive themselves. They'll be too self-important to be servant-hearted. They won't serve others. They'll be too self-important to look around and notice the burden of others, and they'll be too self-important to help them. Paul is saying, we deceive ourselves if we think we are wise and holy based on our own merits. If that's the case, we have no understanding of Christ or his law. If we insist that everything in us is perfect, we not only fail to carry the burden of others, we actually offend them. And in verse 4, Paul says that there is a vain pride, a vain pride of superiority or even inferiority which makes us and our glory the grounds for our motivations and actions. He says this vanity that we, that we can have leads to the Christian comparing themselves to someone else in a bid to feel proud or worthwhile. On the one hand, we may be truly very loving, but if we're surrounded by selfish people, we'll have great pride in our love and we won't seek to grow in love. On the other, we may be living to our God-given capacities, but... Since we may be surrounded by very gifted people, we could be discouraged and not appreciate God's gift to us. In contrast, a Christian is filled with hope and confidence, but that is only because of Jesus Christ. Jesus himself said, apart from me, you can do nothing. So it takes Christ-centered humility to carry the burdens of others. Now, verse 4 also shows us that there is a legitimate pride with a Christian and a Christian can have within themselves. And we are to test our own actions against ourselves rather than against others. This means we, as individuals, assess our own opportunities and our own gifts as God has provided them, and we, as individuals, respond to those. Paul is saying we're not to compare ourselves to others. Instead, we must look at our particular tests, so what we're tested with and our duties, and respond to those obediently. Now, if we see life this way, we will judge our life each day against who we've been. When we see progress, we'll take legitimate pride in it, whether or not we're better or worse than someone else because we're not comparing with someone else. We won't compare ourselves with someone who's done less, and we will not feel proud. Or we won't compare with someone else who's done more and feel despair and envy 
I often, in the past, used to do this. I used to love watching people who played the drums, and I used to go, I wish I could do that. And I used to envy them, because I wanted to play the drums for God so much that I started envying them, and I felt into that trap. Now, our task is to carry our individual load, and we should carry it in a way individually that pleases God, and we shouldn't be carrying someone else's load. If we see life this way, we will be slow to judge others, and we will be extremely generous. Which leads us to our third point. For those, those of us who live by the Spirit, support the gospel. Those who live by the Spirit, support the gospel. Look at verse 6. Nevertheless, the one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. Remember in verse 2, Paul said, carry each other's burdens? Well, verse 6 seems to give another example of burden carrying, namely the financial burden of Christian teachers. The one who receives instruction in the word should share all good things with their instructor. One way to carry the burdens of those who carry responsibilities of teaching in the church is to support them financially so that they can be free for prayer and study. And I know you guys are doing that. Otherwise, this wouldn't exist. Jono wouldn't be here and neither would Ben. However, there was a clear problem with this in Galatia. Maybe they made a good start and then they started to grow weary in supporting the teachers in the church. Maybe some were arguing that, hey, we're free in Christ now and we can use our money for other things. Maybe they were saying, who needs teaching anyway? We know enough of the truth. Money's scarce and the times are hard. We don't know exactly what was going on in Galatia, but we do know that out of all the burdens Paul could have mentioned, he chose to mention the material burden of those who teach God's word. And Paul learned this principle from Jesus when Jesus sent out the 72 to preach. Jesus said, do not take your own food because the worker deserves his wages. And Paul again picks this up in 1 Timothy where he says, the elder directs the affairs of the church Sorry, the elder who directs the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor, and especially those who work, whose work is preaching and teaching. Now, in verse 6, there are at least three implications. First, teaching the word of God, that is absolutely essential in the church. We won't, as a congregation, know if we should, um, as we should, if we go without sound teaching. Worship will become shallow. Affections will become frothy and obedience will suffer where the whole counsel of God is not taught. So Paul considered this essential. Second, those who carry the main responsibilities of teaching need freedom to study and meditate and pray. I've got to say, this past week I spent 30 hours writing this sermon, so I, I've got to vouch for Jono. It is so hard. Um, so finding the meaning of biblical texts discovering how that meaning fits and seeing it in its relationship to life week in, week out. Although it is glorious, it was so much fun and it was great for me, but it took so much time and it does take a lot of effort. Third, it follows that the pastor should be paid so that they don't have to do other work to support themselves. Now, however, some like Paul, they may forsake this right, but those who are taught the word, they need to be at least eager to free up their teachers financially. 
Which leads us to our fourth point. Those who live by the Spirit, they reap eternal life. Those who live by the Spirit reap eternal life. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. After speaking about giving generously to our churches, after exclaiming that we aren't to be consumers who come to a church and simply plunder the benefits of it, Paul immediately follows the idea of supporting those who teach us the truth of the gospel with this warning. Do not be deceived. You reap what you sow. Now, some theologians have called this the law of great returns. Paul uses one of the most familiar experiences in the history of humankind. That is, the agricultural processes of sowing and reaping. In farming or gardening, this is an absolute principle. It's total, it's definite, and it is permanent. And Paul appears to want us to see at least two aspects of it. First, whatever you sow, you will reap. If you sow tomato seeds, you will not get corn or capsicum or chili or anything else. No matter how much you want corn or capsicum to grow. Second, whatever you sow, you will reap. Though the seed may lie in the ground to no apparent effect for a long time, it will come up. It's not the reaping that determines the harvest, but the sowing. I know for a fact I accidentally dropped a chili seed in one of Bell's herb garden. And I thought, ah, oh, nothing's going to come of it. Literally six months went by and we had a chili plant. Um, and we're so thankful because actually we use it now, so it's great. Um, yeah, so it's what you plant. It's not, it's not what you harvest. That's what determines it. So this law of returns, it's unstoppable in the agriculture world, which means it's also unstoppable in the spiritual realm. Listen to verse 7 again. God cannot be mocked. He can't be treated lightly. As verse 8 puts it, whoever sows to please their flesh, from the flesh will reap destruction. Now, this doesn't mean that God is a vengeful God sitting in heaven and looking at everyone and smiting them and, and, and destroying them at every insult. The image of sowing and reaping indicates that the process of moral consequences in our life is much more natural and organic than that. Paul's reference to agriculture shows that the moral universe has processes. Sin against God sets up strains in the physical fabric of the spiritual universe, just as eating fatty foods sets up strains in the physical fabric of our hearts. If you sow poorly, you reap poor crop. If you give in to your sinful nature, you reap spiritual breakdown and destruction. It's inevitable. The warning is blunt, but the promise is absolutely beautiful. Listen to verse 8. Whoever sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. If we live by the Spirit, we will enjoy the approval, the assurance, and the fulfillment, and the joy of the Christian life now, and we will know that it will come to, it will continue to us beyond death. Now we're up to point five, and I, I heard that Gavin went a little bit over time last week. Um, 
It's not going to happen here. We're almost done. So just, uh, just trying to keep your attention. Point five, those who live by the Spirit do good to all. Those who live by the Spirit do good to all. Look at verses 9 and 10. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we don't give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. Day by day, sowing to please the Spirit requires to not become tired in doing good. There is always a delay between sowing and reaping. New farmers and gardeners, they experience a lot of anxiety watching over their seed for weeks and weeks and feeling it will never come up. But it always comes up in the end. Paul has warned that sinners, Paul has warned sinners that though it may seem for a long time that your sin hasn't found you, eventually it will. Now he wants to encourage those who are living by the Spirit, that's us, people who do good, We'll see the fruits and benefits eventually. Just hang in there. Paul is encouraging the young Galatian Christians and us not to lose heart. Because just as the inexperienced gardeners might fail to water, might fail to weed in their discouragement over slow-growing seed, sometimes Christians fail to persevere in their service and their ministry. And in verse 10, Paul makes a sweeping statement. First, he shows that the Christian life, what the Christian life is all about. He's saying it's not primarily about meetings. It's not primarily about programs or conversions, but doing good to all and doing good to the person in front of you, giving him or her what is best for them. Second, the word doing. The word doing shows that we are to give them whatever love discerns as their needs. Of course, we're to share the gospel and evangelize, but we're not to share the gospel and evangelize only as a means to the end of loving them. We don't love them as a means to the end of converting them. But the word doing means that we must not confine ourselves only to evangelism and discipling. We are to love in deed as well as in word. We are to give any aid that is necessary to meet any need within our power to meet, whether it's material, social, or spiritual. This little phrase shows that Christianity ministry includes helping out at a rehabilitation home just as much as it is to explain to somebody how to give their life to Christ. Verse 10 also tells us that this love is to be directed to all people. And so, just so we don't get overwhelmed, you're probably freaking out going, all people, I can't get to everyone. Paul has already added the words, as we have opportunity. I'm so thankful for those words because I, I could only imagine Jono and, and Gavin and Ben just going everywhere. It's, it's as we have opportunity. We're not expected personally to meet the needs of every single individual in the world. We should look around us, though, and see who we are near and where we are and help those people around us. But further than that, and supremely, and again in verse 10, this love, although it is to all people, supremely it's, it's to be given to the family of believers. It's a wonderful phrase that shows all Christians are a family. We're family. Christians are all brothers and sisters in God's household. We must do good intensely with those who fellowship with us. 
This is the lifestyle from which, as verse 9 phrases it, if we don't give up, we will reap a harvest, a real, fulfilling and lasting life. However, in the short term or in the short run, a life like this demands tremendous number of sacrifices. You bind your heart up to somebody emotionally who are unstable. You experience great distress that you could have avoided. You cut yourself off from many options that you could have had if you weren't in ministry or in ministry relationships. You have less money since you are giving very generously to individuals and ministries and church. The costs are many, but the rewards, Paul hints, are much greater than the cost of the seed. As I was thinking about this, three rewards came to my mind. Number one, we often get direct and deep satisfaction of seeing changed lives when we live like this. Number two, we may get the direct and deep satisfaction if collectively we work together. We see families, we see communities, even cities become good places to live and the gospel being shared out. And third, we may even see people whose burdens we've been carrying become burden carriers themselves, changed lives which begin to change other lives. I mean, isn't our mission statement, disciple making disciples? I mean, if you, it, it's just a continuous statement. Disciples making disciples making disciples. It just never ends. It's such a great thing. But in this, we need to realize that there is a deeper harvest that even when we don't meet with much outward success, most of the time we find our own character changing deeply through this type of ministry. Second last point, point six. Those who live by the Spirit are persecuted. Those who live by the Spirit are persecuted. Take a look at verses 11 and 12. See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to impress people by means of the flesh are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. This is Paul's last appeal in Galatians, his last invitation to keep trusting the gospel for salvation and living in it day by day. He wants to convince the Galatians and us that real Christianity is a matter of inward change, not external observances. He again focuses on the motives of the false teachers. They, he says in verse 12, want to impress people by means of the flesh, the outward works. In other words, they want to make a good impression outwardly. Paul has already said that preaching the gospel is terribly offensive to the human heart in chapter 5. People find it insulting to be told that they are so weak and sinful to do anything to contribute to their salvation. I mean, we've all experienced it when we share the gospel. Ultimately, the gospel is offensive because the cross stands against all schemes of self-salvation. The world... The world appreciates religion and morality in general. The world thinks that moral religion is a good thing for society. But the world is offended by the cross, which means, as verse 12 puts it, people who love the cross, that's us, we're persecuted. It could look a myriad different types of ways. It doesn't have to be physical persecution. On January 9, 1985, a pastor in Bulgaria was arrested and put in jail. His crime? 
preaching in his church. He immediately, immediately began to share Christ when he was in prison. He had a trial. That trial was a mockery of justice. He was sentenced to eight months in prison. He did his eight months. He got out and this is what he wrote. Both prisoners and jailers asked many questions and we had a more fruitful ministry there than we could have expected in church. God was better served by our presence in prison than if we had been set free. Most of us get persecuted at work, friends, probably at the pub, whatever it might be. I got persecuted so much at work because I just wanted to share the gospel. Maybe that's what you're getting. That's a badge of honor. Jesus said, if you follow me, they called him the prince of demons. What else are they going to call us? Wear it as a badge of honor. If you get persecuted verbally or vocally, you're on the right track. Point seven and the last point. Those who live by the Spirit, they only boast in the cross of Christ. Those who live by the Spirit boast only in the cross of Christ. Look at verses 13 to 15. Not even those who are circumcised keep the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your circumcision in the flesh. May I never boast in the except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is the new creation. Boasting in the cross happens when you are on the cross. Isn't that what verse 14 says? The world has been crucified to me and I have been crucified to the world. The world is dead to me and I am dead to the world. Why? Because I've been crucified. We learn to boast in the cross and exult in the cross when we are on the cross. Now, what does that mean? When did this happen? When were you crucified? The answer is in Galatians 2. Paul says, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by, the, by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. When Christ died, we died. The glorious meaning of the death of Christ is that when he died, all his own died in him. That death, that death he died for us, takes effect as our death. We are united to Christ by faith. And in Galatians 6.14, Paul says, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So let's not boast in anything else except in the cross of our Saviour. How can we become that radically cross-centered so that our, all our exaltation is traced back to the cross? Answer, let's all realize that when Christ died on the cross, we died. And when we trusted him, that death took effect in our life. Paul says it's our death to the world and the world's death to us. Meaning when we put our trust in Christ, our bondage to the world is broken and the overpowering lure of the world is broken as well. We are a corpse to the world, and the world is a corpse to us. I'll put it positively. According to verse 15, we are a new creation. The old you is dead, a new you is alive. And that new you is the you of faith. And what faith exalts in is not the world, but Christ. And especially, as Paul said, 
Christ crucified. So this is how we become so cross-centered that we say with Paul, I will not boast except in the cross of our Savior, Lord Jesus Christ. The world is no longer my treasure. It's not the source of my life and my satisfaction and my joy, but Christ is. Dead to the world doesn't mean going out of the world, though. And it doesn't mean not feeling things about the world. Some may be negative, some may be positive. It means that every legitimate pleasure in the world becomes a blood-bought evidence of Christ's love for us at the cross. And it becomes an occasion for us in boasting in the cross. And by world, he means not heaven or earth, but the affairs of life. Human praise, distinguished positions, reputation, wealth, and all things that show splendor. All of these things are dead to us. Sin is disgusting and despicable, yet we aren't. Brothers and sisters, we are God's chosen people. We are holy and blameless in his sight. We are treasured by God, and as such, we boast in the one who made us so. We boast in our Lord Jesus We live for him. We seek to honor him with our thoughts. We seek to honor him with our words and our actions. Our boast is not in the meager things we achieve for ourselves. Our boast is not in the things we achieve for one another. Our boast is in Jesus and what he's achieved for us. And that is reconciliation with the Father and eternal life in his presence. Considering what we've heard today, I'll leave you with the words of Charles Spurgeon. The Bible is not the light of the world. It is the light of the church. But the world doesn't read the Bible. The world reads Christians. You are the light of the world. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that you concluded this letter of Galatians by showing us what the Christian life looks like. Thank you so much for what Paul did in fighting for the gospel of grace and showing us the beautiful things, but also the things that we may not want to hear. Lord, as we go out and live this week, may we constantly be reminded in the freedom we have in Christ. May we be reminded to carry each other's burdens and to support the gospel and to boast only in the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.